Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. A lot of people are asking the question today, is COVID-19, is this the judgment of God? on the world or on a nation or maybe on the Western world? And, and is this, what is God doing in this crisis? And how should we respond to that? And, and this kind of a conversation often gets us to pointing fingers at one another, saying it's, it's because of you, it's because of your sin, it's because of the way you live. And, and God is, is having this, this terrible effect on everyone and this disease is crushing the world. Listen, let's take a step back for a moment and let's, let's examine that thinking just a little bit. And let's see what maybe God does in judgment and what he doesn't do. Um, first of all, I, I want to say this, that I don't think this is the kind of judgment that where you say, I mean, it's not God's judgment where you would say, because you have a disease or because you get the virus, that God is judging you. Uh, so God's not judging Tom Hanks or Boris Johnson apart from the rest of us, right? But it is a kind of a judgment, and we've got to look at what that means and, and how that really works. You see, Jesus told us in Luke chapter 13, he said, be careful about saying that because a building fell on some people or the Tower of Siloam, that their sin is worse than yours. That's really not how God functions. To be sure, there are some, you know, some surgical like lightning strikes at Sodom and Gomorrah, for example. But in general, God's judgment works for an entire group of people and he acts to bring himself glory and to, and to cause people to pay for their sin really in much broader ways than that. Think of, of Egypt, for example, where they, the whole nation experienced uh, the plagues and the whole nation experienced the loss of the firstborn child. Think of the nation of Israel, that um, God acted through people like the Babylonians and the Assyrians to take them all into captivity. You see, God works in this way. He brings judgment but it's not so much to say, you know, I'm judging you because you're bad that I'm going to give you this disease. The prophecies of Revelation will be fulfilled and God will, in fact, deal with evil. And know that, that when he does, it's, it's going to be dramatic. And so when you think of COVID-19, this is not on the scale that we see in Revelation, at least not yet. But here's what it does do. The coronavirus and the disease it causes, COVID-19, it does point toward God's ultimate judgment. It's, it, it tells us that we're really not in control. And these kinds of outbreaks can happen. And God's judgment will be real one day. He will judge the earth one day. And you see, when God judges, here's what happens. He judges through all these sense of there can be natural plagues, there can be wars and rumors of wars. And the Bible describes them, describes them like a woman in labor. As her pains become more intense and closer together, she gets closer to actually giving birth. And that's how God ultimately will judge the earth. There are these disasters, and they, as they get worse and closer together, we know we're getting closer to the end. So what I want you to hear me say is, God will judge evil ultimately. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when man and woman first sinned, God promised that there would be an ultimate death. 
And so in Revelation and other uh, prophecies, we see that God is moving this creation to an ultimate judgment. So the question becomes then, well, well, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Should we be cursing the darkness? No, we shouldn't be cursing the darkness. That doesn't really help. That's not what God called us to do. What he's called us to do is consider our own hearts. You see, when we see this kind of a, of a COVID-19 crisis, it really gets at our own pride. And it says, Steve, are you examining your own heart before me? Because I've called you as one of my people, and I've called First Baptist Del Rey and other followers of Jesus Christ, I've called you to be my representatives. And so we have to examine our hearts before the Lord. God, am I, am I lined up with you, Jesus? Is, does my life match up with you? Am I the preserving salt that preserves and saves a rotting uh, piece of meat? Am I the light that brings light in darkness? Or am I just cursing the darkness? You see, we have a really important role as followers of Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and we saw that uh, last week as we looked at uh, Matthew 5, 17. We saw Jesus make an incredible statement. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get you out of the law. I came to fulfill it completely. And on Resurrection Sunday, he rose from the grave to complete his fulfillment of the law. And as he lived before his death, burial, and resurrection, he lived in such a way that it it kind of redefined or completed, fulfilled the law. And he set a standard for us that we need to examine ourselves against. Because he said this in verse 20. We looked at this last week of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. He says, For I tell you, unless your, meaning my people, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think about that for a minute. You think about all that's happening today. Um, he says your righteousness must be better than the scribes and Pharisees. And understand this, the scribes and the Pharisees were the best of the best. They were better than anybody you know, I'll guarantee you, in terms of keeping the law. But their obedience was an outward obedience. And Jesus is saying, I want to give you a righteousness that goes beyond just an outward act. And when you hear that word, outward act, and you consider what our inward hearts are, you know as well as I do that often we can make it look good on the outside while there's turmoil on the inside. That's what we want to address today as we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount and living like Jesus To get our lives lined up to be like Jesus, we need to be whole, meaning our inward life needs to match up with our outward life. And it's a much better life, and certainly it's a much more effective life. Jesus came to be this incredible king who would begin a kingdom. And he called us to be a part of his kingdom and to follow him and to live like him so that we can be that preservative in a rotting world, that light in a dark world. That's what Jesus' goal for us is, and that's what our role is. Sometimes we see all that's going on, and we see all the sin and all the the bad things that dishonor God, and we think, you know what, we got to straighten those people out, and those people are wrong. 
You know, expect sinners to sin. It's a dark world. Our role is to be preservative in the rotting world and light in a dark world. So let's begin to look at how Jesus laid out our lives in ways that we might not expect. And he, he identifies things in our lives that we, in fact, need to change. And so I know what you're thinking. Well, so you're going to tell me what's wrong with me, right? And you're going to tell me the things that I... Listen, when God points out the things that are wrong in our lives, it's merciful and it's loving. Because he's telling us, this is what needs to change. I don't want you to live in this darkness. See, often there are things in our lives that dishonor God, that separate us from God that we don't even recognize. See, God loves us too much to allow us to live so far from him. And so he presents to us in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, six different things that really deal with living from the inside out. And we're going to touch on a couple. We'll touch on all of them. We're really going to examine um, we're really going to examine two very, very closely. And the first one we're going to look at is the problem of anger. Jesus talks about anger in maybe ways that you haven't considered before. And listen to what he says, and then we'll kind of walk through it and, and examine it. Verse 21 of chapter 5, again, this is a Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus is laying out how we need to live to be his followers. And again, the idea is that we will live in such a way that we'll build our house, our life, on the foundation of Jesus Christ on the rock. Because we all know there's going to be a crisis, and the crisis always reveals the foundation. So let's look at some, some potential cracks as we consider anger. Verse 21 says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And you're kind of saying, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense to me. Is he saying, is he saying that anger is as bad as murder? Is he saying that if I get mad at someone, I might as well go ahead and kill him? No, that's not what he's saying. But he is saying that anger is sinful, especially in this idea of rage, or that I want to see you disappear. Uh, I think you're an empty head. I think you are, are, are a moral fool. That's, that's the kind of anger he's talking about towards people. It's very self-centered. It's, it's, it's all based on this is what I want and I'm mad at you. And you say, well, Steve, you know what? I have a, um, I have a righteous anger. I do. I, I get mad when I see injustice and, and it really spurs me on to straighten stuff out. And, and that's my anger. You know, I'm not going to argue with you about that because I do think that there can be this sense of emotion that causes us to act in a very positive way uh, to, to right wrongs. But let me say this. I don't really have that anger very much. 
I just need to be honest with you. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. But for me, my anger is almost all selfish. Maybe even completely all selfish. So when you look, that's the kind of anger he's talking about. It's the anger that's very self-centered, that explodes on people, that gets uh, people to do what you want them to do, and, and it really kind of demeans them. So I want you to examine your anger for a moment. What kind of anger do you have? Is it the anger that really is cut from the same cloth as murder? It's not punishable in the same way on earth as murder, and certainly murder causes a lot more problems. It's a lot bigger deal. But anger is sin in most cases. And for me, I think it's in every case, and I would encourage you to, to consider that for yourself. So here's what he's saying. Your anger is causing a big problem, even if you never act on it, right? Even if you never do anything physically, your anger is a big problem. He says you need to deal with that, and he gives a couple of great examples. He says, listen, if you come into worship, remember when we could come to worship? Y'all remember that when we used to come into all the same building and we could all hang out and we could touch and hug and all that stuff? Remember that? We're going to do that again um, sometime. But if you come to worship, and let's think about what worship is for a minute. Worship is coming to Jesus. It's saying, Jesus, I, I, I come to you as my God, as the one who saved me, as the one I'm trusting. And you come in angry, it's a problem. There's sin in your life that you need to deal with. That's why every time we take the Lord's Supper, we always say, you need to deal with your heart. Don't do this worshipful act if, in fact, there's still sin in your heart. So he says, you come in and you uh, to worship, and you remember that a brother, and a brother in this context would have been another follower of Jesus, has something against you. You need to go deal with it. And we read that and we say, well, it's not my problem that he's got something against me. He's just, you know, I don't, I, that's his problem. No, what, what he's saying is, if you remember that a brother has something against you as a result of your anger. In other words, you've offended a brother. You've said something you shouldn't have said. You, you've, thrown, you've flown off the handle. You need to go deal with that. See, that's a sin, and it's disrupting not only worship, but it's disrupting your relationship with another follower of Jesus. That's a problem. You need to go deal with that before you worship. That's number one. And number two, he says, listen, if you are uh, on your way to court against an adversary, and again, the inference is that the reason the adversary is after you is, again, you had an angry explosion to someone who's not a follower of Jesus. You're getting ready to put on trial in court. You're gonna wind up in prison. Here's what Jesus is saying. Your anger is not only a problem among other believers, but now it's become a problem in the community. And you've disrupted your witness and hurt your, wisdom, your witness, harmed the church in the community. And remember, what are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be Jesus's representatives to the world. He's saying, repent of your anger and deal with that quickly before it becomes an even bigger deal and before you become basically imprisoned and are unable to have an influence in your community. Oh, doesn't that kind of just get you right there? Jesus is saying, I want you to deal with your anger. Don't let it destroy you and destroy your witness in the community. My followers will be those who deal with their anger and don't let that sin grip them and be a problem in their life. Repentance is required when you have those kinds of issues. 
So think about that. As you're going through your life, who are you angry with? What, what relationships have been disrupted because of your anger? What, what community um, people have you have been angry with that are now you can't witness to, you can't share with? Think about that as you think about your following Jesus and what your role is. So anger is number one. The second is um, even more challenging, I think. He starts to deal with this issue of lust. So let's look at that uh, in Matthew chapter 5, the very next section, verse 27. Jesus says this, and notice the, these are the same words he started the last section with. He said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And, and literally what that means is you have understood it this way, but let me help you understand it in the way that it really means. And that's so important because remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law, define the law, to, to fulfill everything that the law, the Old Testament ordered up. And he's saying, this is the way you understand it, but let me help you understand it completely. Verse 27 says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Kind of a powerful statement, isn't it? Think about that. Jesus says this. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. And adultery is sexual sin outside of the marriage between one man and one woman. That's what adultery is. And so when you think about that... um, that's what he's defining, and he's dealing with commandments number seven and number ten of the Ten Commandments. He said, "You've heard it say, you've heard it say, don't commit sexual sin, don't have sex outside of marriage." He said, "But I say to you, if you look on a woman with this evil intent or with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've already sinned." In other words, here's what he's getting at. He's saying. He's saying if if you look at a woman or if you look at someone to objectify them and to say, I am imagining them as a sexual partner, that's really what he's saying. If you're looking at them in that way, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. So again, understand that Jesus is not saying because you fantasized about somebody that you ought to go ahead and and have an affair with them. That's not what he's saying at all. But he is saying this, that the thinking about them and seeing them as a sexual partner is sin. And it's causing great havoc in your life that you may not even realize. And so he says this, what, what do I do about that? Steve, what do I do with this drive or this lust that I have in my life? And he gives us two kind of radical things. First, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, you ought to, you ought to tear it out so that it's better to enter heaven without an eye than, than to not enter at all. And you say, well, wait a minute. Surely he can't mean that. And this is one of those, those uh, instances of scripture where you, you, we always want to take the plain meaning unless the plain meaning literally doesn't make sense. And Jesus is not saying that you ought to do yourself bodily harm and pull out an eye. But what he is saying, is you need to do something radical, and it's worth doing something radical to save yourself from sin. So many, it's interesting that he uses the, the, the eye as an illustration. See, the eye is the problem in lust, isn't it? It's what you're looking at. 
It's a big, big issue. So you may need to say, you know what, I need to stop looking at some things. And the obvious things would be something like pornography or, or movies that are, are constantly uh, uh, glorify sex outside of marriage. But it also may be just somebody in your life, in your office, in your world that you constantly look at and constantly you, you have lust towards. You may need to change where your focus is. Quit looking. You may need to change even where you work or where you spend a lot of time because that person is constantly, you feel drawn to them in that way. Do the radical thing. It may be expensive, but it's worth it in order not to sin and lead others into sin. And then he says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, you gotta cut it off. And this kind of gets to this idea of there's some things that you do, you may not should be doing. Because right hand would be kind of your work, what is my role, what am I doing? And so you may need to change jobs. You may need to change professions because the profession that you're in constantly puts you in position to have these lustful thoughts. The question is, is it important enough to follow Jesus to do some radical things that would change my life? He's calling you to follow him. He's calling you to do some radical things. And I know this is difficult, and this is one of the most challenging things in our culture today. But what is more important, your own desires or following Jesus? Is he that important? This Jesus who died on the cross and gave you this life, this eternal life, this forgiveness, this innocence, is he worth it to give up some of the things that you're used to having? Jesus goes on and he does uh, four other illustrations of this. Uh, the next one is divorce. And in those days, you could just give a, a, a certificate of, a, of divorce and you can get divorced. And the thinking there is what Jesus is saying just because it's okay in culture doesn't mean it doesn't still reveal a heart that is broken and that needs, uh, needs to change. Uh, then he goes on and talks about oaths. Do you need to constantly put something behind your words and say, you know, I swear by this and I swear by that. Jesus says that illustrates something wrong on the inside and that's not going to work. And then he deals with retaliation. Do you feel like Everybody, you always have to respond to someone if they put you down and, and you've always got to retaliate. Uh, that illustrates again that you're, you're self-centered and you're, that you're trying to make yourself look good instead of making Jesus look good. Then the last one, and I want, to, I want to touch on this because it's really kind of ties it all up. Jesus says this in verse 43 of chapter five. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do this? Verse 48, get this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what he's saying. I want you to be complete. Don't line people up as whether they're your enemies or your friends. He says you need to love even those who harm you, even those who are against you. And this is setting us up to understand who Jesus is because what does Jesus do? He prays for those on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is the heart of someone who follows Jesus. 
And you may be saying, you know, Steve, I can't get there. I got to tell you, that's, that sounds great, but I just don't know how I can do it. How can I deal with my anger, with my lust, which my, with my selfishness? How can, how can I love people that hate me? How can I do that? What Jesus wants us to understand, you can't on your own. But Jesus will promise and he will send later the Holy Spirit. And that's who we have in our lives. Remember, we are to be the connection between Jesus and a lost and dying and rotting world. And I love uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16 because it says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Get this. Do you know what the temple is and was? The temple was the place where God met with his people and where sin was atoned for. I mean, that's what God says we are as his followers and we collectively are as his church. So here's my question. Do you want to be the preserving agent? the one who saves, helps save a rotting and a dying world. When you see this, these disasters like Hurricane Dorian, uh, like the COVID virus, the, the COVID-19 and the coronavirus, when you see those things, let me just ask you, uh, do you see God's judgment in the sense that he's getting all those evil people or do you see that God is moving history to the place, the world to the place where he finally will deal with evil, and that we have the opportunity to help people avoid this coming judgment. See, God will judge the world. Our role is to be his representatives, to provide atonement, to provide uh, a connection to Jesus, to provide peace and innocence to those who are guilty. That should be our heart today. That's what he's calling us to be, to be his spirit-filled temple. In order to do that, you say, well, Steve, how do I get there? Let me just tell you this. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's very simple to say, Jesus, I want to repent of my anger, my lust, my selfishness, my pride. I don't want that to be who I am. I don't want that to be who I'm known for in my family and the people that I love and also in my community. I want to be like you, Jesus. I want to conform my life to you. You got to get there first. That, re that repentant prayer is always the prayer that gets answered. And when you repent, the Holy Spirit begins to take hold again in your life and to give you power to do things you could never do. I got to tell you, you're never going to conquer your angry rage on your own. It's the Spirit in you as you repent and allow Him to work in you. You're never going to conquer your lust on your own. It's only through repentance and asking the Holy Spirit to take hold that that's ever going to happen. And that's the only way you're going to be able to take the kind of action you need to take to free yourself up from those things that cause that lust in your life. You're never going to love your enemies on your own. That's something only Jesus' Spirit can do through you. I urge you today, the world is dying, right? There is a judgment coming ultimately at some point. Um, don't you want to be one of the rescuers? Also, for those of you who would say, Steve, I don't know Jesus in this way. I don't think I've ever received him. I urge you, would you accept Jesus Christ and repent of your sins today? Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would move in the hearts of those who are far from you. 
And for those who don't know you, Lord, would you draw them to you in an amazing way? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.